welcome to the Hell Project podcast. This is where I share all of the results of the research and reading that I've done on the doctrine of hell over the last few years. Uh, I defend the view that uh, without Jesus, we are all dead. Uh, This is the view called conditionalism, and I believe there's better news in it than the traditional understanding of hell. And I try to defend that here. The audio quality may not be that high as it's taken off my YouTube channel and unfortunately some of the streams do have technical glitches but I hope that you stick with it and uh, do let me know what you think, share, uh, get involved through Twitter or even comment on my YouTube channel. I look forward to hearing back from you. Enjoy the show. to the hell project this is a another live stream talking about hell as that's what this channel does and uh, my name's phil uh, i've been running this channel for getting close to a year probably now and uh, had a variety of guests on with differing views uh, about the soul and uh, about hell um, you can check the back catalogue but what i believe on this channel and defend on this channel is that the uh, judgment of God is finite in time. Uh, it has an etern- It is eternal punishment, but the uh, experience of those who go there is finite, and uh, that's called conditionalism. The immortality of those who uh, of everyone is conditional on belief in Jesus. And uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute. I've got a guest with me uh, today, William Tanksley, who has been a contributor to Rethinking Hell for uh, a good amount of time. He's going to tell you a little bit about that in a moment. Um, If you're just joining in, do let me know that you're watching on the live chat. Um, Hopefully my computer will settle a little bit and um, everything will work. Um, But do let me know about sound levels and all, all the sort of technical things as well. Um, as we go. Uh, The conversation today is about dualism. We're going to define that uh, as we go as well, but also compare it to some of the other views of biblical anthropology, the makeup of the human. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking to William and hearing his story. So without further uh, waffle, I'm going to introduce William. Hi, William. Welcome to the the Hell Project. Uh, This is the first time I've had you on. So uh, would you be happy to share your story? So who are you? What do you do? How did you become a Christian? Let's, let's start there. Sure, sure. Well, it, I, was, uh, I was brought up in a Christian home. Um, I remember um, doing devotions with my mom, and um, I still actually have the devotional we were working on together I, um, and I remember the picture at the top of the page we were working on. It was a picture of a globe, and on it the stain of sin was spreading downward like a, a syrup poured over the top. And that particular page was when I realized that you know I I could not, um, I couldn't just be a Christian because I was in a Christian family. I had to. Um, I had to talk to Christ myself. I had to establish a relationship, repent of this sin that was polluting the world, um, and ask Christ to deal with that. 
So there was um, appealing to him for that clear conscience, um, the personal, the one-on-one relationship. Uh, I don't know. I was about six at that time. So some of that's reconstructed. You know how it is. Um, But so I've just been raised as a Christian my whole life and, you know, grew up just like anyone else, an ordinary, well, ordinary Baptist, at least. Um, And, of course, the eternity of hell torments and all that stuff was just assumed. Um, Our church had a uh, um, very well-known guest over, and he'd written a book called the, um, well, something about the evangelical mind, Um, a very interesting text and we discussed it and in the process of his presentation he mentioned that of course um the language for hell in the bible was metaphorical and it was very great suffering but it wasn't literal fire and you know we discussed that um on his way out the pastor walked up to the microphone and said that was really fantastic but by the way hell is literal fire Okay, I I brought that up because that is actually how we believed at that church. And, you know, we weren't mean about it, although that was kind of unkind to do that on its way out instead of talking to him about it. But it was kind of strangely lighthearted for something that's that important. I never never questioned it. Why why should I? (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, anyone questioned hell? You just naturally lock them in with the um, not just universalists, but the universalists who think, you know, God is just too nice for that. We just shouldn't believe it at all. There's that stereotype, right? Yep, absolutely. There are genuinely that genuinely is a position. So it's not a um, it's not completely false that people believe that way. But that's not actually what's going on here, is it? No, no. Um, it was, yeah, it was about 2010, 2011, I stumbled onto a podcast run by Chris Date, and after a couple of years, I heard him interview Edward Fudge, um, and I realized this was not just a fake, it, you know, it was not just the fake position I'd heard it was, it wasn't just people denying hell, there was something else going on, and... Well, I spent another year, year and a half, um, rereading the Bible, editing some book, uh, editing a 600-page book Joseph Deere put out, um, The Bible Teaches Annihilationism, going through every single Bible reference he listed. Okay, so you, you um, helped edit that, did you? Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that right. tome. That, that tome, yeah. I've, I had Joseph Deere on uh, probably a couple of weeks back now. And um, I mean, it yeah. is a tome. It's, it's massive. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm still engaging with it. <laughs> so yes. if you've gone all the way through it, then uh, you you know it better than me. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, I mean, I didn't want to particularly risk changing such a major thing. Um, so yeah, I, I did two things. I mean, if um, oof. I'm trying to remember the podcast that recommended this. Um, let's see if you know who I'm talking about. The uh, detective, the cold case detective. Oh, 
Uh, um, Jay, Jay Warner Wallace. That's it. Um, yeah, Jay Warner Wallace, I would listen to his podcast all the time, and he recommended when you're studying a, a new topic, when you switch topics and you want to really focus on it, get a new Bible and mark it up. Now, I didn't actually mark up a Bible. I've never been able to mark up books. That's just not how my family works. But I got a new, you know, I got my Bible and I went through a read the scripture in a year sort of plan. But this time I'm thinking, well, really, what, what, what a, is the final end of man? So if you read the Bible and you're thinking, what is hell? You'll, you, the question you're asking is going to affect how you read the text, right? If you're thinking, what is the final end of man apart from salvation? The answers you get are going to be very different. Um, have you read Hell Under Fire? I I have, yeah. I, um, I, I've been meaning to review it on the channel a little bit. But uh, oh, yeah. it's quite extensive, and and you guys at Rethinking Hell have done a fantastic job already. So I didn't really want to be uh, reinventing the wheel, so to speak, when you've already shown it for well, what it is. Well, yeah, I mean, we did a six-part um, series, and I think each part was two or three hours. So you know, maybe a little bit less of a wheel of time approach, and more like Starship Troopers. Or, <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, what, what I'm about to say is that it's um, section on the Old Testament's view of hell. When you read that, he is very careful. That, that author is just um, excellent at stating the question. He asks the question, and then his answer is, um, so he asks the question, what is hell in the Old Testament? And his answer is, well, the Old Testament does not really tell us what hell is in terms of a final punishment for the wicked. So you ask that question, you get the answer, a busy signal, no signal. Okay. Um, and then he, he, he backed up a little bit, but instead of asking the question, what does the Old Testament say the punishment of the wicked is? His next question was, okay, then what does the Old Testament say what happens to us at death? Now, when you ask that question, the Old Testament does give us an answer, but it's kind of confusing. We're going to be talking about that today, in fact. So it's kind of interesting that we'll go into this. Um, it's unfortunate that a lot of people have made that the last question they ask. What happens to us at death? Um, and that was indeed the way I was raised up um, to ask only what happens to us at death. I, I learned about the resurrection, right? Um, and I learned that it is the center of the faith and that it has always been the center of the faith that we trust that Christ will one day come, um, raise all men and judge the living and the dead. Uh, this is at the end of all of the creeds. Well, it's in the middle of the Athanasian creed, but that's just how it's structured. <laughs> and besides, that one's not really an ecumenical creed. It's like unofficial. It's a good one, though. It's a good one, though. Very good creed. <laughs> okay. You know how it is. All right. Um, so, so 
what I never did was I never connected those two, the two questions, what happens after death and why do we need a resurrection? So I guess we can kick off with that. I mean, it's so, I don't know, I'll, I'll just finish my little testimony. So yeah, after, about, great. Yeah. after about one to two years, um, I had done that work for uh, Joey. Um, it took us a long time to actually publish the book, but you know, now all I'm happy with all the references. They all have the right page numbers in the index. And I got a call from Chris Date, and we started up Rethinking Hell. You know, and that's kind of the day I finally uh, decided which side of the fence <laughs> to land on. Right. So you, um, you'd actually gone through the whole of Joey's book and not quite made a decision then. Exactly. Um, the, my real, the real thing that um, made a difference to me was finishing reading the Bible. Um, it, it's, I think it's very important to go through a book, go through as many books as you can from the different points of view so that you can get a chance to hear one person give a testimony. Uh, that's a proverb that uh, every Every man's claims sound good until his opponent asks him the questions, yeah, yeah. right? So, you know, I read Joey's book. I read Hell Under Fire. I didn't read it right back then, so I don't want to – I read uh, Hell on Trial then. Um, well, that's um, Peterson, isn't it? Peterson. Yeah, I've got that on my bookcase, but I haven't – I've done it reverse. I did Hell Under Fire first, and I've got Hell on Trial still to get involved with. I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't unrecommend either one. I think Hell Under Fire is more thorough. It's, a, it's unfortunate that it's, it's multi-author and the authors didn't really work together. So you'll sometimes find, um, I think it's Yarborough who clearly has read some of the others but disagrees with them. And others um, clearly have not looked at any of the other authors, you know, so they're just contradict them. <laughs> yeah, which is, a, I mean, is unfortunate. It makes a bit of a mess of the book, really. A, a bit. But with that said, each essay by itself is interesting, even if some, <clears throat> excuse me, mm. <clears throat> some like Moeller seem to miss the point completely. Mm. Unfortunately, Moeller gave a history of liberal reception of hell. His specialty is Christian, um, Christianity and liberalism. And so he wasn't really looking at the history of thought about hell. He was looking at a history of liberalism. Yeah, I noticed, I've same. noticed that quite a bit with um, older attacks on annihilationism or CI. So um, one book that I was recommended early on was David Pawson's book, um, who's unfortunately the late David Pawson, who died, I think, yesterday, actually. So um, have you come across David Pawson at all in the States? Could, could you name his book, see if I recognize that? So his book's The Road to Hell. Um, he's a British theologian and Bible teacher, very renowned in English circles, but I'm not sure how well-known he is across the pond. Um, I've, I've, I've heard of his book because I've studied... No, but I have not read it. I've right. not got yeah. it. Well, he has he has some controversial views himself on on other aspects of theology, but um, 
with regards to hell, he, he said it was an argument against annihilationism. I think he wrote it either late 80s or early 90s. So he could well have engaged with Fudge, but clearly didn't. And the arguments just missed the mark completely. And I felt that was similar to Moller's attack, or, or at least his introduction, was you're arguing for something that isn't what we're arguing for. And we're quite clearly not liberal. <laughs> we're quite conservative, actually, I think, most of us at Rethinking Hell when it comes to other doctrine. Um, but for it, it's almost like you have to make that point very early on in the conversation. Now, actually, I, I do believe in the Trinity. I do believe in Jesus' deity. I do believe in the virgin birth. And, and list all the things that we're for. I mean, I, I can sign off on the Nicene Creed and all those other creeds just like anyone else can. I just don't sign those statements of faith that people have made up that say that hell has to be eternal conscious torment, which seems to be a common thing in at least America. There's there's some churches yeah. that would do that in, in England as well. Um, yeah. So thank there's, you for, there's for sharing a, your story. There's a, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, on. there's a deep, deep historical reason behind that that uh, goes back to um, the early 1900s, the turn of the century, really. Um, in America, at least, there was a pretty concerted attempt to take, to take over seminaries and church hierarchies um, by progressivists, um, a, a, a particular ideology that felt um, they could improve the world and, you know, mankind was just on the verge of everything becoming awesome. The ideology was pretty much crushed by World War One and then World War Two. Um, you know, it's, you know, the death of a lovely idea, as they say. Mm. But progressivists thought that by taking over the church and replacing unpleasant, what they saw as unpleasant doctrines with just something that was nicer, they'd make the world a better place. And so the churches co correctly defended themselves. You know, they said, you don't pick a doctrine or a science or anything else based on what is nice. You look for what's true. <clears throat> yeah, no, and that, that was the source of so many um, modern divisions. And one of the results, and we'll, I don't know, if we, if we look at the history of conditionalism here, we'll see that was what ended conditionalism coincidentally. Because while they, while the uh, conservatives were fighting universalism of the particular sort that was prevalent in those seminaries, um, the fight of, of those two extreme, extremely extreme sides cast conditionalism into complete shadow. Nobody noticed it anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, prior to that, it had been actually a pretty big deal after it. You know, you just you can't even see it when there are people arguing about will God do eternal torment or will he do nothing at all? Yeah. The question of, <laughs> yeah, what is death? Hardly even registers on the meter. It's so true. Yeah. yeah and and trying to bring that forward. So I think there. Yeah, I can see that. I, I'd say conditionalism seems to be I'm, I'm trying to work out if it's not a echo chamber that I'm in. But conditionalism mm -hmm. seems to be picking up at least a little bit more than maybe a couple of years ago. I, I don't know. I, it might be that I'm in an echo chamber because that's what I'm 
uh, doing online at the moment. But um, <laughs> that's the, the danger of a, a channel like this is uh, you start hearing things that you want to hear and and not hearing the opposition that well. Um, so, I mean, I could talk about conditionalist history and all the other aspects of the uh, topic. Quite, uh, we could talk for hours around the topic. Um, but trying to keep a little bit on the on the focus, I think just some things to pick up from what you've just been talking about. You've got um, you made mention that it's important to talk about and th- read when you're looking at the Bible um, the language of judgment. Uh, what is going to happen to the wicked, not just in death but after judgment? And and I think I, I've done a couple seminars now, and that's what I really try to focus on is. What is God saying about his judgment through Genesis to Revelation? What's the thread? Is it consistent? Um, all that sort of thing. And um, so I think that's really important. But also I, I agree that there's been a few articles recently, what happens when you die, but they don't really deal with the judgment aspect that much. They talk about heaven. And even then there's some challenges to, to what is popular, at least. Um, so today's focus is a bit about, and we may well get into the weeds, so maybe I need to suggest some caveats about those watching. This is very much a secondary, uh, issue conversation that in terms of data from the Bible, I'm not a hundred percent certain there's loads. And, um, so those watching, if you disagree, that's absolutely fine. But I think it's important to have a discussion uh, around this topic uh, of, of what happens when you die. What does it look like uh, for for us as humans? What does it mean to be human? And um, But ultimately, our conversation is a large proportion of people that hold to conditionalism are physicalists. And what I mean by physicalist is that they the soul and the body are a unit. You When you die, your soul dies. Um, there's no sort of experience for the soul and when you're resurrected you resurrected as a unit new body new uh, yeah new body new soul but it's it's you but in a renewed form uh, is that is that about right for physicalism would that be what you say would you define it in a similar way that's that sounds actually like a um, that sounds like a good uh a, a good way to speak of physicalism, yes, right. Um, it's there. There's actually a couple of other things to consider, also um, ways to speak of and think about the human condition um, now um, at the resurrection and in between. Yeah, you know, the question one one of the questions people asks when ask when considering dualism is how will we make it to the resurrection. Um, it, a lot of people give the reason for being a dualist in terms of, well, you know, I don't see how it's possible for God to say he raised us up if we didn't have any existence it, because we were completely dead in soul and body and our soul even stopped existing. Right. Okay. That's um, interesting. I haven't come yeah, across yeah. it in that way before. That's That's good. I, I would recommend, even even as a dualist, I would recommend Glenn Peoples' um, series, In Search of the Soul. Um, take it, um, well, 
at the time I listened to it, I was very willing to uh, become a physicalist. Mm. Um, I would say I wouldn't mind becoming a physicalist now. I have no objection to it, even though I'm not particularly inclined. Um, but he is trying to convince people of physicalism. At the same time, he is a very qualified um, philosopher, and he is genuinely teaching the concerns. So he'll, he'll raise concerns like that, um, very serious concerns, and then discuss how people answer them. Interestingly enough, I don't think that's an interesting question. I don't think it helps illuminate because um, dualists do have an answer to it. You know, uh, us dualists do have an answer. It's a very easy one. We exist the whole time because God keeps our soul, right? Um, the second Peter uh, two nine, uh, the Lord knows how to keep the wicked under punishment unto the day of judgment, um, until the day of judgment. Um, did I say first Peter, second Peter, uh, two nine. Right. Yep. Okay. Um, so fine. That's, that's, that's great. I mean, that's not the only way of reading that verse and I'm not trying to disprove physicalism here. I'm simply trying to explain the dualist position, but the physicalists also have a perfectly fine answer, which is, God does indeed know how to keep people, no matter what people are, no matter whether they go out of existence or they go into a state of sleep or whether he has to grab a little part of their brain at the last minute and hold that. Um, literally, anything that you can say, God has no problem doing. Um, and so those particular kind of ph philosophical objections don't really... Um, to me, don't seem like very persuasive to anyone who actually holds the the position you're arguing against, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I... Um, and and so we've 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 emphasized the importance of getting our opinions from the Bible, but there's a little bit of a problem there. The Bible doesn't talk very much about dualism, physicalism. Um, when it does talk. The authors seem to each have their own voice, and they say different kinds of things. Um, it, very famously, the thief promised the thief on the cross was promised that he'd be with Christ in paradise that day, mm -hmm. or he was promised that day that he'd be with Christ in paradise. Um, it's look looking at that verse. I feel uncomfortable. Um, trying to accept the uh, the assertion that Christ was saying anything other than this day you will be with me in paradise. This is one of the reasons why I remain a dualist. But at the same time, looking at it as, as a dualist, which I was then, um, I also look at Acts 2, which again has its own voice. It says that Christ was bound with the... Um, hangs or cords or ropes of, of death. He, he was in Hades bound with the ropes of death. Um, that doesn't sound pleasant. It doesn't sound like something that would happen in a place called paradise, right? 
And, and then you look at the um, much older writings, um, Ecclesiastes 9, the dead know nothing. Um, you yeah. look at Genesis 3, um, you will struggle in painful toil until you return to dust, for you are made of dust, and to dust you will return. Um, and then God set up a guard at the Garden of Eden to prevent man from continuing to live forever. So let's let's just pause on that one for a moment, because I think Genesis 3 is worth uh, a real conversation. So there's a couple of things that are, I think this would be worth talking about. So f first off, you've got the very, you've got the other view that we haven't discussed. I won't spend too much time because I'm not at all convinced of it, but I think it's worth discussing just to get our terms correct correct and where we get some of the language from so just a bit of background for me when i started looking at conditional immortality and writing the very first essay that i wrote about uh, conditionalism um i started the introduction and I, i'm not sure if you remember reading it i remember sending it to a bunch of you guys from rethinking hell saying are you able to look at it and i think chris date got to the first chapter and went yeah <laughs> So I don't think he really liked it because I was talking about the soul and he just wanted, no, you don't need to talk about the soul when it comes to conditionalism. And uh, yeah. and he was right, you don't need to. This is a side uh, issue when it comes to the judgment. But at the same time, I think it's a natural connection to the discussion and uh, partly because of the tradition of the immortal soul and that's something that needs to be addressed with those who uh, hold to that but also just in, in for me it was like a rabbit trail of dealing with things like nefesh ruach i hadn't come across these terms before but i had come across people who are like well actually it's a tripartite view of human mm. anthropology and um even on the course i was on someone was there's quite a few people in my church tradition, which is uh, probably, a, I think it's come out of Baptist, but we're sort of house church movement in the 70s is now grown. You might have heard of, I don't know if you've got many over your way, uh, but New Frontiers is what we're called. But there's quite a few people that held to the tripartite view when it was asked the audience and some held to dualism. But actually, the, oddly enough, most people thought it was spirit, soul and body. And I'm struggling to figure out what the difference between a spirit and soul is, but I think it's something to do with spirit is the breath of God. Your soul is who you are and your body is your physical form. Uh, have you come across that view much in your interactions? I, I in fact, um, as a teenager, that's pretty much the view I held. Um, since then, I, I would say I'm, you know, the, I've learned that some people hold it with far more passion, and they think it really proves something. Um, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've actually read some very um, interesting uh, discussion of that by church fathers, which um, is kind of one of the topics I'd like I'd like like us to get to um, how the church fathers approached this. That sounds good. Um, yeah. Right, because. I, I was just saying that the Bible has speaks with many um, voices that can be very confusing, and a lot of people just tune one of the voices out. Um, so you hear 
God say that um, dust thou art to dust returnest. Um, and um, uh, Longfellow, um, an, an early American poet, replied to that, replied to the scientific um, view of his day that life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. Right? Well, what was it spoken to? It was spoken to Adam. It said, you will return to dust. Um, how can that mean your body will return to dust, but you will not? Very um, confusing, honestly. Um, but we, we have to take this, this whole Bible with all of its different voices, its ways of looking at the question and understand what it is trying to say, why this is important. And to me, the answer seems to be that the doctrine of final, um, the final destiny of man, punishment, reward, um, life and death, those things are very important to the Bible, spoken of in every book. The question of what happens after death um, of what we are made in a scientific sense, you know, can we divide us into parts? Can we dissect a human and find what they're made of? That question is not a concern of the Bible. Yep. It's something we can extract from it, and it's something that the church became interested in soon after it was founded. Hmm. But it does not seem to be a primary concern right there. And let me add, I, I miss, I omitted some of the biggest biblical verses cited as evidence for um, dualism. You can't not include Luke 16, um, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? I mean, there you have something explicitly happening, happening after death where a person is given some continuity between this life and not the next life, but during death. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's great. And uh, I think that's really, really important to note that through the Old Testament, there's so much, and part of why I had to back out of deciding where I was a dualist or a physicalist when I first started engaging with this, because it, it is a rabbit trail. You're, you're dealing with hugely a metaphorical language the blurring of the lines is it the grave is it death is it is it an experience like you've got um the shades in isaiah that will come to meet you um and i think it's isaiah 14 that one where it talks about the shades i'm not sure if the king james changes that name a little bit um so it's working out what is poetry what is it just uh, ancient people trying to put language on something they're not quite sure about. Um, you've got this blurring of the lines as well that Sheol is where the righteous would go to uh, mm. with Jacob going, I will, in my sorrow, I'll go down to Sheol over Joseph. Um, mm. and, and that's key when looking at Luke 16, like you say, you've got this par paradise or Abraham's bosom with a chasm with then torment on the other side in in Hades. So that's very clear with Luke 16 that it's this, it's not the same as Gehenna. Um, and, and so, yeah, that I would agree that dualism 
makes sense of those that parable particularly um mm -hmm. there's more after death which i think a physicalist view may well have an answer for but isn't as plain you have to argue as many people do that it's so not literal that you have to shrink down the meaning quite considerably i mean i, I do agree it's a parable i don't agree that there's yeah. a guy named the rich man that we will meet one day and oh, i was the guy of that story uh or not <laughs> or see across a chasm actually we won't meet him he's gonna <laughs> he's gonna burn, burn up what am i talking about <laughs> so um but that that whole story is a lot of i think with a physicalist view you'd ha you have to argue that it it is such yeah it, it, there's nothing we can take away with regards to its setting or its um yeah and and that's actually i've had some significant pushback on regarding that story that's parable is why would jesus use something that's completely not going to happen right. as a framework for a story um right and i, I find that is that's what an argument i think roger harper makes uh if, with yeah. when he was on and he goes a little bit further to say this how literal this space is um, right but yeah that's that's uh roger harper's view which we might engage with a little bit so okay so the tripartite view what mm -hmm. what would be uh, are you so with physicalism we're both a bit like yeah it could be mm. are you the same with spirit body soul view or would you argue well, a little bit more against that yeah, I, I would not accept the view that is that I held as a uh, as a child, except in just in terms of hey, you can divide things up any way you want, right? So you can say the mind, will, and emotion is the soul, and you can say my um, uniqueness that what makes me me and not someone else is the spirit. You can say that if you want. But when you try to actually say what would happen if they separated, well, that starts to not make any sense. How can I have a mind that's separate from who I am? What does I don't that. So when, when you try to press that issue as a matter of doctrine, you just run out of Bible verses. There's nothing there. Um, on the other hand, I find it interesting that um, Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus, um, from about 150 AD, um, gave a very detailed systematic anthropology, you might say, at least it was detailed, um, of the body, soul, and spirit. And that's actually something I, I found very um, helpful in my understanding of how those things might work together in a Christian uh, doctrine of um, person and even animal life um we'll discuss that in a bit but um yeah right i'm sure yeah i think i think i tend to get confused with the difference of things that and it does also depend on who you're talking to as to what means what around the tripartite view and it also seems to stem from a specific reading of the bible anyway where you'd probably come into trouble when it comes to things like conditionalism <laughs> and that there would be other other issues yeah. um, 
around it. And for, for me, unfortunately, it is a little bit of a, a flag of I'm not going to get anywhere in this conversation. I might need to bite my tongue <laughs> when it comes to, to other aspects. And that might be a little bit of a, uh, a stereotype. But um, when it comes to that view, one thing that did clarify or at least focus my understanding of biblical anthropology is uh, look, being really careful to not jump to conclusions when I see the word soul in a translation and also not jumping to conclusions when I see things like, um, well, even God's spirit, like a wind and uh, nefesh and ruach was a really interesting terms. And I haven't quite done a full on study to really look into that um, mm-hmm. a bit more. I think Bible project does a good study on, on the soul and I need to uh, look a bit more at what they say. So I'm, I went to a little bit of a physicalist view, kind of, I probably could have been convinced it at some point for yeah. that view. I can see it, especially when it comes to resurrection. It does make a good case when it when it, you think of resurrection, that resurrection does mean a unit being raised from the dead. And especially mm-hmm. if we're arguing for a definition of death that doesn't necess- necessitate separation. Um, which I think many conditionalism conditionalists would argue against the traditional view that death is a separation of uh, us from God. Death is a separation from soul and body. Uh, and well, uh, I'd I'd want to make a little note right there. Mm. Um, saying that death is a separation, well, that can be a bit unclear. It's mm-hmm. as Chris Date points out, the word is has a whole lot of uses. I guess Bill Clinton pointed that out, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Got to be careful there. Um, but um, what do you mean, what do we mean when we say death is, is a separation? As a dualist, I actually think there is, in fact, a separation there. Yep. Um, but does that mean that's what death is? Well, it depends what context you're talking about. If you're talking philosophically, um, if you're trying to figure out everything that happens when death happens, then you can say there is a separation at death. But is that the cause of the death? Is it a consequence of the death? Or is it the death itself? Um, Biblically speaking, it cannot be the death itself. Um, Not in the reason I say that is that we know from Matthew ten twenty eight that man can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, right? If the separation itself just was death, then man, by killing the body, would be by definition separating it from the soul, which means the soul is also separated from the body. Both are equally under death at that point. Um, if that makes yeah, sense. That they're in sense, yeah. state being separated, and so they're both dead. Um, so any definition you give of death cannot just mean the separation that um, you and I believe does happen. Um, yes. That's, fortunately, that's the linguistic meaning of death, that is what you'll find in, in uh, lexeme, uh, lexicons and dictionaries. <laughs> I said lexemes. <laughs> out. Um, what we meant. Yeah. So, so dictionaries and so on, they'll explain that death means the end of life, 
the permanent cessation of vital functions. Um, and then they'll give examples like the batteries were dead. Um, you know, the, the, the lifespan of a light bulb, um, the death of the body. You know, you say you can kill the body. Well, that means you can make its vital functions stop. When its vital functions stop, we believe that God takes the soul of the person, you and I. Um, and the uh, physicalists believe that when its vital functions stop, those vital functions constitute the soul or there is no soul and that the vital functions are what stops. Mm. Uh, depending on which variant of physicalism one takes, reductive or non-reductive. Yeah, there's, a, there's um, a, another rabbit trail we could go down. Uh, I noticed you commenting on someone's post the other day that was uh, starting to talk about things like that. I mean, there's there's big books written about body and soul that we could engage with over time, but uh, my motivation starts to wane a little bit. <laughs> it gets a little bit too philosophical for my... I mean, it is fun, and I, I am quite happy to admit I am a bit of a geek when it, it comes to stuff like that. But um, yeah, this time and uh, busyness does stop me from from doing that. Um, so, so the point the point is that when all you know is you've got the word dead or death or die in a text like the Bible, um, all you know is what the dictionary tells you mm -hmm. it can mean. I, I mean, at least that's the purpose of the dictionary, right? Yeah. Um, that's what it's there for. Yep. Um, you don't know what philosophical um, point of view the author has or is trying to persuade you of. You have to let them do that work. You can't just apply it right then and there without using the dictionary first. Um, and and for, for that reason, it, you know, you'll find some places where some people genuinely do use death as a metaphor to mean separation. Um, I don't know if I'd say that's in the Bible, but some people do use it that way. Mm. So in principle, it can be done. So there's that common uh, separation example from uh, Ephesians 2, mm -hmm. where you've got you're dead in your sins, but you're obviously still alive. Um, some yeah. people say, well, there's this spiritual death element and that's that's what it means to be in sin um, you mm. can still experience while being dead and they read that back into if in genesis 2 and it uh verse what was it verse 17 where it says in the day that you eat of it you will die hey look they didn't die but they did die they died spiritually um right so bizarre way of reading i, I really struggle to empathize but <laughs> with that with that way of reading it but it's um that's that's the kind of death is separation kind of definition that I hear but I think it's really important that, as you've clarified that there, there is something about death which the soul and the body are disconnected at least from a dualistic mm -hmm. perspective but yeah, yeah the, the definition of death being a cessation, I, I like Chris's definition that he repeats the cessation of uh, life and the ability to experience would be a good good way to define death and how I define it uh, or, or try to is that 
any metaphor for death is generally that it's an end. So like you said, the death of a battery, this battery is dead. It's well, it's no longer functioning as a battery. It's no longer useful for me. I it's, it's and that, then you get this yeah, definition of ruin going would, in. You wouldn't say this rechargeable battery is dead, so I'm going to plug it in. Yeah. Um, it's more likely you'd pull the rechargeable battery out of its charger, put it in, and then realize, oh, no, this is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning I tried my best to revive it, and I couldn't do it. Yep. Yeah, that's, and that's an important distinction to make. Um, so just taking where this uh, conversational dualism goes to, so what are the biggest... Um, well, yeah, what are the biggest arguments against conditionalism from other dualists that you've come across? Um, well, I mean, I would say that dualism is very important to, um, to the argument that you've just made that passages like Ephesians 2, um, uh, rather than being a straightforward um, figurative speech... Um, instead, they are assuming this huge metaphysical background, um, which then can be taken as a definition and stretched all the way across the Bible and applied to Genesis. Um, yeah, I'm using a lot of negative language there, disapproving language, because it, it's rather it's rather remote to. Um, take the use of one passage and stretch it into a passage written by a different author. Um, John speaks a lot of um, life as a condition we're in now versus death as a condition we're in now. Um, it, it becomes, for, for him, it becomes a different way of using the word. But you don't just take... Um, John's talk about life and apply it to Paul or Mark. Um, they are, or worse yet, Ecclesiastes. And certainly you don't want to just assume you can take Ecclesiastes' use of death and jump over to Luke. Um, That's re- really important. Yeah, they, they speak in different ways. They have a different way of a perspective of looking at the facts. Um, and now I'm not being all Bart Ehrman here. I don't think they were fighting each other. No. And hopefully we'll get a chance to look at that. Not, not Probably not you and I on this podcast, but um, later. Yeah, we can do this <laughs> um, again. I'm, I'm sure we're going to – I'm just <laughs> noting that we're almost at an hour already and we feel like the conversation's only just started. So we might have to have a part two on this. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, um, yeah, uh, where were we? Okay, so how do dualists use this against conditionalism? Mm. Well, mostly it's, it's implications like the one we've done. I mean, that, that's a decent argument. You know, if the premises are true, the conclusion does seem to be persuasive. It's not um, logically airtight, um, even so, but persuasion does not depend on absolutely airtight arguments. Um, as I mentioned, I find it persuasive that Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross. Um, it sounds to me like he really was intending to say something about that very day. Yeah. Um, 
Right. And that that was going to kind of seal the deal for the thief, because otherwise the thief would have nothing. Uh, he just a miserable, awful death. And then, um, well, what else can you look forward to? Yeah. Um, in that way, the thief was told, um, like the martyrs in Revelation, um, you have assurance. Here, here are the symbolic robes. These represent, you know, assurance of salvation. Now, rest. So, I th yeah, that's, that's really... I, I think the thief on the cross is quite a significant one. I, I, the usual kickback is a, a comma was in the wrong place or something like that with, uh, yeah. with those. And I, I find... Yeah, that's not what it, it feels. It feels iffy. I I wouldn't want to lean on that. Yeah. Um. At the same time, it's scary to lean on so little evidence. Mm -hmm. Um. I in the past I've compared it to building a pyramid, on it, starting by standing it on its tip. <laughs> you know, imagine <laughs> a side down pyramid. Yeah, it's gonna fall over at some uh, point. Yeah. If you're arguing against conditionalism based only on what the soul means, um, you've got a real upside-down pyramid of mm. biblical evidence. Yeah. Um, and you're going to wind up with these thousands of verses about death, destruction, fire, um, like chaff, like tares, like tinder. Um, yeah, and yeah, all of those. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. you're... you're ba basing all of it on just a few verses and you're picking those verses out and even the one that you and I find persuasive um, the thief on the cross eh, it's it's about a saved person mm -hmm. not an unsaved one yeah. and it's um, what's the word I'm looking for here it is somewhat ambiguous even though it's persuasive to both of us, we have to make, could be taken another way. And there is evidence that um, you have to be careful with that. When people take that to mean, of course, the thief and Christ were in paradise enjoying themselves, then you run into that problem with Acts, which actually contradicts that view. Yep. Um, Christ could not have been just enjoying himself at full capacity. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was very happy, but there are some problems with that claim when you come to the pains of death, um, which is a quotation of the Psalms. Or, or I'm sorry, that's Acts 2. Mm -hmm. um, Peter's sermon in Acts 2 speaks of uh, Christ being um, tied with the pains of death and then being loosened um, by God when he raised him up, of which we were all witnesses. So we're, we're talking about something that happened when Christ's body was raised up. Um, now, what that means, we can do a lot of philosophy, but what it can't mean is that it was like a total Garden of Eden experience, very much like a, um, very much like uh, what we call heaven will be when at the resurrection. Um, that has to be much more than what happened than what happens in Sheol in Hades. And even even in the paradise that you and I probably think is in, um, or rather that the dead go to. Um, but what is it? Uh, there's some, yeah. What what is what is yeah. it? And um, 
why am I, why do I wind up convinced? There was a time when I did advocate very strongly for soul sleep. Um, I was so close to being a physicalist that some physicalist told me I really was. You know, that I, I was just fooling myself. Just for those listening, um, can you just define what you mean by soul sleep? Sure, sure. Okay, so soul sleep can mean, it, soul sleep means a denial of consciousness, dream death. Um, it implies that the soul exists, but it doesn't require it. So we can say physicalists believe in soul sleep, even though they would say the soul doesn't exist at that point. There's a more precise term called soul death that means the soul completely does not exist, even though, of course, death does not mean a lack of existence. Yep. It means the end of life. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm glad you defined that, just to point that out to those who are new to the conversation. Oftentimes, annihilationists, the, the comeback is very much, oh, annihilation means that you don't exist. And, well, no, it means you die. <laughs> yeah, please, could be please do... Please let people explain what they believe and don't just assume you already know it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, on a slight tangent, the the idea of not existing generally covers mm -hmm. if, if I'm a corpse, I would say I mm -hmm. no longer exist. But that seems to be a, a play on words for some people in this conversation. Um, but the... Yeah, that edit. That's, that's another time. But the, uh, I think that's a really important point to make: that death doesn't necessitate uh, no longer existing in the sense of, well, the imagery of the Bible, like ash or corpse or uh, whatever that might be. But it does imply no longer experiencing life. <laughs> it does imply yeah. that life. Life is, and nothing right. like life. Um, yeah, you won't have the cessation sensations or experience because that's what death is um and 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 there's there's also questions about um there's there's questions of language you know i i always spoke so far of i spoke of the death of the soul just now um when talking about soul death um i spoke of the death of the body earlier um but we have other ways of talking about death we can say a person died you know, my, my grandfather died back a few years ago. Um, what do I mean by that? You know, obviously I don't mean his whole, I mean, I don't mean my grandfather no longer has a soul because I'm a dualist. I actually think he does. But I just said something that kind of sounds like I think that. Um, sometimes when we say things like that, we are we're simply using language in an ordinary, in a conventional way. We're not being philosophical. Um, at the same time, um, my grandfather as a whole human did die, right? Um, in fact, more than that, um, the whole human was dissolved in a, in, in a certain sense of that. The parts came apart and drifted apart just as much as you might say that happens to the body underground. Um, now, again, you and I believe that the soul is a special focus of the person, but that doesn't mean that it is the whole person. 
when a human only has a soul, they are not functioning as God intended. Um, Genesis one twenty six is the definition, the explanation of God creating man in his image. And it, it has God speaking in the, in the, um, in the Hebrew uh, tense, in the Hebrew mood of a plan. He says, let us make man in our own image. Um, and let him rule over um, the beasts and over all creation. Okay, the way he's expressing that, um, those moods combine together to form a plan. Um, And when you put an and inside a plan in that particular way, it is cause and effect. Let us make man in our own image so that he may rule over all of the uh, beasts, over all the earth. Um, We are in the image of God as a whole human so that we can have a function in creation. When we die, that function ends. Uh, We are no longer having a part in all that's done under the sun. Um, What else we're doing is much less important than the, our inability to anymore fulfill those purposes. Mm. Um, and so this makes the resurrection especially important because the point there is to bring all of these images of God back and sit them um, to reign forever and ever. Um, so, so this is very much, conditional immortality is very much an image of God-centered um, view. Um, and a view of dualism that does not recognize the importance of a complete man, a complete, excuse me, a complete person, um, is a very weak view in that respect. Yeah, I think that's really important to stress, just to emphasize that as as a the Christian hope is resurrection. Yeah, we are meant to be embodied. We are meant to be in creation. I think that's really important to point back to Genesis. So yeah, thanks thanks for doing that. Uh, we are meant to be ruling creation, and that's what we look forward to in new creation. And we've then got one Corinthians fifteen saying we will gain these. Mortal bodies will be made immortal. The incorruptible, sorry, the corruptible will be made incorruptible. And uh, that is the hope. And it's something that I think many miss out of their gospel message. Um, that the yes. Christian and hope. even the two, the two verses that the trichotomists awesome, awesome use, often use. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> It's early for me. It's no late for you. <laughs> it's <the way> it goes. <laughs> but the two verses they often use, um, I don't have the references right handy, but um, Paul it, it lifts up a prayer and says, May God preserve you whole, in body and soul and spirit, um, um, for his coming. Um that that passage does not say may god preserve all your parts 
It doesn't say, may God preserve your soul and spirit. The point is that this is a, this is a prayer for our resurrection. Um, now, I, I think there might be a little hint there of a prayer that, hey, I hope, I hope he comes in your lifetime, too. Because otherwise, my body's not going to be preserved exactly. It's going to be restored, right? Um, but whatever works, I mean, I'm not going to have any problem with dying, with falling asleep, as Paul put it, and Paul and Christ put it, knowing that I'm going to wake up, right? Um, whatever, whether you take that metaphorically or literally, fall asleep, wake up. Yeah, um, yeah and, and that's what it will seem from a... That's what physicalists would argue, and those who hold this whole sleep would argue um, that it is. But notice, the, just notice the word in that verse: "Preserve you whole." Mm. Um, if if you look at if you look at that, that's an adjective in Greek, and as such, it can be singular or plural. And English doesn't do that. English just mm. adjectives always sound the same. But in Greek, it is singular. You are one whole, and may he preserve you as one whole. Wow. Right? Wow. The prayer is not to be split up. And, and then you look at the other verse that's often used there. Um, the word of God is uh, living and powerful. I'm so King James here. I'm, I'm flipping back to King James and having to translate. Absolutely fine. You, you just go King James. Oh, I'm used to hearing it, but uh, I generally go for, <laughs> for other, other versions. It's all good. Yeah, so I translated it to living instead of quick. Yeah. Um, and, and sharper than a two-edged sword, able to cut, um, let's just skip, to, to divide asunder soul and spirit. Hmm. Now, does that mean soul and spirit are separate? Um, you know what? It almost means the opposite. It means they're naturally not separate. Hmm. It, it's not good for them to be separate, or rather, it's not normal. And... What the Word of God does is something that nothing else could do. And, and so you look at that, and that's as evidence that we're normally constituted of you know, three separate parts. Mm -hmm. It becomes really difficult to evidence. I mean, yes, okay, maybe you could cut apart the marrow and the bone. That's actually pretty easy. But you would not have a person left after mm -hmm. you did that. Yep, yep. So just uh, kind of tie things together then with the whole. Uh, well, let, let's look at the timeline for example. So let's say the question is, what happens to you after you die? How do hmm. you answer that as a dualist? Right. So the way I put this all together personally. Um, is that it looks to me like when you die, what you experience is will basically prove will prove to you um, what you were in life. Um, I I think that what was pro that was what was promised to the thief on the cross that he would have an experience of being with Christ in paradise. Um, I said an experience, not ongoing experience. I think that's what I see also in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, 
even though so we don't see any experience from Lazarus in that actual story. It's not his story. It's the rich man's story. Um, he, the rich man, totally and definitely in the story has an experience. Yes. Um, yes. But he has an experience that is very dreamlike in many ways. Um, he, he feels like he has a tongue. He feels like he's in flames, but the sensation he gets tells him to ask for a drop of water from someone's finger who's a soul and doesn't have the finger. Um, He has this long involved conversation with Abraham who elsewhere in the, nowhere else in the Bible is in charge of Hades. Mm -hmm. You know, St. Peter does not guard the pearly gates. Abraham is not in charge of Hades. Those are um, kind of folk stories. But it does make sense if God designed things so that we will see a summary of our life um, after we die or when we die. Um, By the way, um, Martin Luther gave a sermon on the um, rich man and Lazarus, and his opinion was that if it was real, it was something he experienced as he was dying, not after he died. Um, You and I can afford to be a little looser. It could be that way. It could be after he died. Um, But this, this is something that people would expect. But what we don't really see there is any confirmation that that's objectively real. Did Abraham really take several minutes out of his time to talk to one person who just died? Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with that is that there are so many people dying that Abraham should only have maybe a couple seconds with each, Mm -hmm. not several minutes. Um, It doesn't feel objectively, you know, either time doesn't work the same there, and that's okay, that might be true, or it was a personal personal visionary experience, and that makes a lot of sense because, of course, the rich man, if he'd seen Jesus, would have gone, who are you? You know, I'm no relationship to you, and Jesus would have said, yes, that's my point. Um, but I, I'm sorry, that's kind of a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> who are you to me? Yeah, um, yeah. But, but he certainly knew. He had a mental image of Abraham, and he recognized him from the start. Yeah. And that's another sign we're dealing with a dream. And he did not, he wasn't the one who said, oh, there's a great chasm here. It's like it was called his attention. There's another typical feature of a vision, a dream experience that somebody points it out to you and you go, oh, wow, I, that was totally there all along, I guess. But I didn't see it. Um, And so we have this subjective experience that actually does make sense of what's happening in the text on a literal level. Um, And then at the same time, when the thief had his um, experience, he was with Christ. And of course, there's there's a level, the subjective experience of being with Christ and the actual fact that Christ was also there. Right. Um, but we shouldn't take even that to be too um, difficult as though, well, Christ is actually in heaven. And, of course, we believe that Christ ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Um, but at the same time, in the Great Commission, Christ assures his apostles that I am with you always, continually. Um, in Ephesians 2, you know, the one we talked about earlier with, you know, dead. Death death well, it yep. also says that, that he has seated you in the heavenly places. Is that's as as you read that the, the way I my ecclesiology is that as you read that text um, with the church, whether, whether that's you know reading it all aloud together, whether it's um, uh, it, the point is being in union with the church. You don't, but you are seated in the heavenly places. Um, you're with Christ, right? I mean. You, for we have now come to the heavenly Zion in Hebrews uh, 12, I believe. Um, this is where we are now as we read Hebrews with the church. Um, it's not a promise about where we will be, although it certainly is a promise of where we'll never leave. Right. I mean, if, if those spirits of just men made perfect are the spirits of the dead, um, okay, that's fine. I, I don't think that's the right way to read that, but I certainly have no problem with it, right? Um, Just, anyway. Yeah. So, so that's a, a longish answer to the question. Yeah. <laughs> with, um, Long, complicated, but I think uh, you see yeah. what I'm saying there. Absolutely. So God can give us these visionary experiences, mm -hmm. and of course, don't forget, in a very real way we won't have eyes at that time right yeah so we have no natural ability to see one another yeah um when i think of the argument from intelligent design i'm absolutely not taking sides i'm not trying to bring that up but at least we can observe our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made mm -hmm. and one of the things they can do is they can see feel touch they can experience um even to an extent they can know mm -hmm. um and, you know, no matter what your view of what the soul does, our bodies are an amazing part of who we are. Yeah. Yeah. To lack that has to mean to lose something. Yeah. Now, God can give us that back. He could give it to us the whole time we're dead. He could give it to us in little bits at a time. Um, um, so, in a sense here, I see what you might call partial soul sleep as very plausible as integrating those texts. I would even say normative soul sleep so that when Ecclesiastes says the dead know nothing, he's not saying the dead cannot know anything, that it's impossible that the dead can experience anything. Um, but he's rather saying that's how it normally is. Right. Interesting. So that would then allow things like, I, I, I love the name of this. Uh, it sounds like something from Tolkien, but the Witch of Endor, where <laughs> they, they um, call up Saul, yeah, Samuel. Uh, Samuel. That would your view would allow that to occur because it's not normal. Samuel's mm -hmm. uh, a physicalist would say, "Well, that's a that's a demon that's presenting itself as Samuel," which doesn't right. I, I think is you have to wrestle with the text to fit that. Um, yeah. Samuel clearly says, why have you raised me up? 
that's not a normative experience, but it's a possibility because you're saying it's partial soul sleep. Yeah. Um, Would you excuse me for just a moment? I'm sorry. I I I left my power cord. (laughs) Oh, no, that's fine. Do do what you need to do. So while you're doing that, I'll just summarize uh, where we're at. So I think we're both. I I probably need to come to an end because it's getting close to dinner time anyway. But we've got a few questions. And thanks for those who have uh, given us a couple of questions. So far, I would say, so my response to what happens when we die, just while we're waiting for William to, to come back, we all settled, Will? William, sorry. Um, cool. Um, so my my response would probably not be as settled on that, but I, I think there's some form of experience. That's kind of where I'm at between death and resurrection. Um, just talking to you, William, it, it's interesting that it, it's something that isn't really thought through that because we've lost our bodies in death, we won't have our eyes and our senses. So what is, then it, you start ending up further down the rabbit hole with, well, what does my, what does the soul actually do? Is it a ghost in the machine? Is it, is it a part of me? Uh, it is clearly a part of me, but what that experience is like, Jesus has had to put some sort of vision language around a parable if we are to take it that literally. And uh, mm-hmm. as you're going through it, I, I, I think Luke 16 is a great example of the complexity of Scripture that we need to be careful we're not taking too so literally that um, we end up missing the point. The point is that the, the rich man has missed out on the law and the prophets that point him to someone and even someone resurrecting them, uh, being resurrected from the dead, uh, won't won't save them. So, um, it's it's an interesting passage, and I, I think I'm still going to be wrestling for a, a little while on, on that. Um, your screen's frozen. Will are you there still? Still, I. I'm here. I oh, can right. hear you, yeah, you can hear but I can see my screen is frozen. Okay. Well, you're still you're still here, still part of the conversation. So we'll we'll use your uh, frozen picture as a as a place marker for your voice. Um, so and I'm aware of the time, and uh, there's a couple of questions in uh, in the live chat, and we're gonna I think we're gonna have to do a part two of this, William. So um, if if you're up for that, we can organise another another chat another time. Um, I'd be happy. Great. So a couple of questions. The first, the first one, I think you've answered in the sense of um, think souls of non-believers will be aware in Sheol. Possibly is is a kind of answer for me. Is that you've said sort of partial soul sleep, so they might experience, yeah. but not for the whole time. They, I, I would say, they experience. Um, what God needs them to experience. So it is intentional, um, like the visions God gave to John. Um, he saw exactly what the Father's Son intended him to see. The Father and Son intended him to see. Right, okay. That, that's an interesting perspective. I'm going to have to dig into that one a little bit more because I haven't come across it in the same way. Um, and then... Uh, I'm going to save one one of these questions to right at the end because it's a bit of a doozy, or it might not be. You might have an answer straight away, but it's it might put you on the spot. 
Um, the other one that I've come across recently that I haven't really engaged with myself is do animals have souls and w- what are your views on them living on? Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so there's nothing really about that in the Bible. Um, we can't know by shared experience per se. Um, and I, I shouldn't say there's nothing about it in the Bible. There's a little hint in Ecclesiastes, which is mm-hmm. kind of, you know, we, we can only take Ecclesiastes as a typical um, presentation, not as a universal. Um, at least that's very common in the church. I take it more literally than I think most people do. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ecclesiastes compares when, when it's when Ecclesiastes is speaking um, out of concern and despair. He says that God um, tests and cleanses men by giving them the appearance men do not know whether when they die their spirit goes up to God or whether it goes down into the land, into the earth. Um, And when it talks about going down, it compares it to like the spirits of the animals. Um, And so... And the the point here is that we are supposed to be somewhat in doubt about what happens, first of all. Um, We don't know whether, just by looking at things, it looks to us like we, it would be good if we were preserved. But when we look at things with a clear eye, without prejudice, it looks to us like we're dissolved. Um, but the really concerning thing here, there is the question you asked, what about animals? And that one seems to say that animals simply are dissolved. Now, is that does that happen to all animals? Well, if, if my interpretation of Ecclesiastes is correct, it's not a universal statement. Right. But it, what should we expect? Well, we have no assurance of salvation for animals, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm there it, as well. The same as, the same as um, you know, the um, uh, faraway tribe that's never had a chance to hear about Christ. I have no assurance of salvation for them. Does that mean I'm going to say they're uh, condemned? Hmm. Well, it's, okay. It's, it's <laughs> not, not, not our position to say, I guess, in, in, in a lot of ways yeah. with, with things like that. That's, I, that's their, their Lord will judge them. Yeah. I have no assurance to give them. Yeah. And I, I think that's really important when it comes. I mean, that's a whole other topic that uh, I think um, is maybe worth a, another conversation at some point. But I, I think that's where I'm at. I, I don't think there's a really good case for animals having souls unless you're to take the breath that God gives all living things as a form of soul. Um, so that that would be my take on it. I I think there is hope that everything will be made new. Animals will be potentially made differently in new creation, I suppose. Um, but there is an intended relationship between humanity and animals where humans were meant to rule 
in uh, the right way alongside God. And I, I think the Bible Project does a fantastic job of highlighting how, how that is. Yeah. If um, you want to hear anything on that, look up the... I think uh, they start talking... They talk about the relationship between um, mankind or humanity and beasts in their Son of Man series on their podcast, which I'm, I'm currently listening to. Um, and mm. that's a really important um, aspect of the creation was we were meant to rule with God uh, but we were above the animals in that way. Um, what that now looks like for new creation, that's something we can look forward to exploring. Um, but to say that they have souls and would be saved, I, I think that's stretching uh, biblical theology a, a little bit much. Though I, I did come across um, Eric Hernandez. I don't know if you've come across him. Uh, he was talking mm. about the soul on someone else's channel fairly recently, and he's fairly adamant that anim animals have souls, and it's quite a new view to me. Um, so maybe I'll I'll get him on the <laughs> on the chat if I can at some point. We can talk about that. But I think well, I mean it, might it's, be getting into it's, the weeds. It's, it's fair to say that the Bible uses the same words, the same expressions to say animals have souls that it uses to say humans have souls. Mm. So you can't really spit the split, <laughs> split the languages apart. It just talks about it a lot less and doesn't give us any details. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if I'm right that souls normally do continue on, and by the way, we should say that let's quickly touch on the fact that one argument raised against conditionalism is that if the soul does not die when the body dies, therefore the soul is immortal. And cannot die. Mm. Um, one of the uh, great conditionalists actually called the soul immortal. Um, this was Saint Irenaeus. Right. Um, and but we we should have a enough nuance in our language to recognize that someone can say the soul does not die, um, while recognizing that the soul can die. Um, and perhaps next time we'll go into the early church fathers, how the yeah. early, very early church received from the apostles and and somehow wound up with the idea that um, souls um, do continue to um, exist and they can have consciousness after people die. You know, that's I mean, that's what we believe. And one of the reasons I believe that is that I see that in the early church fathers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so Irenaeus did say that that there's an immortal soul, meaning that it does not die when the body dies. But then he also said that the soul does not have life of itself, that rather it partakes in the life um, by being joined to a spirit. And so there you have your trichotomy. Um, but he also says in Book 5 of Against Heresies that the spirit is not a personal thing. It's, it does not have a mind. It does not have memories. Um, it could go from one person to the other in, in concept. We could, in fact, be given a new spirit when we're regenerated, when we, when we are saved, as we might put it. Um, at the new birth, we could be given a new spirit and our old spirit be gone. Um, and that's kind of how Irenaeus put it, that um, when, we are, when we are saved, when we're walking in union with the spirit, 
our spirit becomes the um, the immortal spirit provided by God and not the spirit that is merely animal well, um, that men naturally have. See, so you think, have there yeah. that, like the spirit as kind of as a spare tire right. <laughs> almost. Goodness. Okay, well, I got you. I think I think I follow you. I think I'm going to need to have another take on that one when we go to. I'm very much up for digging into the church fathers and how these views have developed. Um, I think uh, my capacity for following you on that is starting to be limited by my lack of food. <laughs> so I might have to. Uh, um, so I, I just want to. Th- yeah, hopefully people in the the comments have enjoyed that. Peter Grice has commented saying you're awesome, and uh, I should talk to you about your view of Ionion. But I'm gonna I'm gonna have to pause that as well because it's gonna go on. Um, well, but um, so just uh, on a on a last note for potentially opening a whole can of worms there's a question from london theist uh very first question of the the chat actually (laughs) what are your views on 1 corinthians 15 29 and the the baptism of the dead line that sort of interrupts the flow i think wow um you know what (laughs) on on Passage like that, I, I look around at the commentaries and I just don't feel like I have any legs there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what he means. Um, I, I, I'd be happy to speculate, but I feel like it's, um, as I've thought about it, it, it feels like what he's trying to say, even though I don't know what he's talking about, what he's trying to say is that you guys have participated in this. Um, ceremony, ritual, belief, whatever it was, and to participate in that, but to not believe in a resurrection are just ridiculous, laughable, contradictory things. Uh, Now, I I don't understand his argument because I've not figured that out. I've read a few papers on it, and I'm still shrugging. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I can't really no, answer that question. That's kind of where I'm at as well. So I, I preached on it in my church uh, probably about a year ago now. And I think probably like most preachers, you kind of do what you've done. There's there's a lot of tension here and a lot of different views. He could be making an argument kind of like the unknown God argument in Acts that there's this practice that you guys believe in yeah. Why would you believe that if there's not a resurrection? There's there's a whole bunch of views, and like like you, I think it's one of those things we're going to have to ask Paul when we see him. Um, and go, yeah. oh, what was that line about? <laughs> what have we missed in in your culture that you were speaking into, or the Corinthian culture that you were speaking into that we just don't quite figure out? Um, we get the general view. I mean, one because it's fifteen is one of my favourite passages. Anyway, we get the general idea, but that one verse is a little bit like, uh, what's what's going on there? Um, So I I need to start closing this down a little bit just um, so that I can put my daughter to bed and uh, help out around the house a little bit. But um, I just want to say thank you so much for giving up an hour and a half of your day and uh, talking about the soul and, and conditionalism with me. It was time well spent. Thank you. Yeah, I believe it was. Hopefully people will find it helpful. So I'm, I'm going to uh, wrap this up and um, 
if if you want to stay on Skype for a minute, and uh, we can just I'll, I'll talk to you in a mo. Right, thank you, thank you for watching, and uh, I hope you found that interesting as I have. I, I feel like I've learned a lot of the different views of the soul, and I'm looking forward to engaging uh, potentially around church fathers as well, and how the views of the soul and the body have uh, developed. As you can see, this is why it's a secondary issue. There's so many different views. There's so much to that is speculation. But ultimately, what we believe is that when you believe in Jesus, you will be saved and you can have hope for new creation when your body, your soul, however that works, you will be together <laughs> in the new creation, enjoying it. And as 1 Corinthians 15 says, the mortal will be made immortal, the corruptible, incorruptible. And that is the hope that it's not just this space in heaven, but it's here, what we see that is good will be made even better and made new. So that is the Christian hope. I, I hope that you've uh, heard that in this conversation. And um, again, thank you for watching. I'm going to close it off there. And, uh, thank you for listening. And I want to know what you think. Do get in touch. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, you can do that through uh, Twitter or my YouTube channel, but I also have the scripts and free resources and other studies that I'm continuing to engage with at uh, thehellproject.online. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the channel and uh, the show in any way, please do go into the description of this episode and you can find a PayPal link. Otherwise, I do this all for free and I hope you found it helpful. God bless you. See you later.